Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Is America's primary system working? Is the Electoral College still the best process for electing a president? Could a third-party candidate ever be successful? In a new season of You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen gather the country's top experts to explore these issues and more as we approach the 2024 presidential election. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available now wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to True Crime Garage. Wherever you are, whatever you are doing, thanks for listening. I'm your host, Nick, and with me, as always, is a man that has the nanny cam set up to keep an eye on that sneaky little elf on his shelf. Here is the captain. It's good to be seen and good to see you. Thanks for listening. Thanks for telling a friend. Today in the garage, we got a big beer on tap. That beer's name is Bill Brasky from the good folks over at the Peddler Brewery in beautiful Huntington, West Virginia. Bill Brasky is a New England-style hazy IPA and one of my favorite SNL characters. Big on aroma and flavor, just like the legend Bill Brasky himself. ABV 6.6% garage grade four out of five bottle caps. And let's give some thanks and holiday cheers to some of our good friends that helped us out with this week's beer run. First up, a big cheers to Philip Malloy in El Monte, California. And also in Cali, we have Holly Jackson in Upland, California. And a big we like to jib to Ben Davison in Holman, Wisconsin. And last but certainly not least, we have Jen Vaughn in Queens. Everyone we just mentioned, well, they went to our website, truecrimegarage.com, and they clicked on the donate button, which helped us out with this week's beer fund. And for that, we thank you. Yeah, B-W-E-R-U-N, beer run. Make sure you go to our website, True Crime Garage, and sign up on our mailing list. And if you haven't already, Subscribe to our channel on YouTube at True Crime Garage TV. And that's enough of the business. All right, everybody, gather around, grab a chair, grab a beer. Let's talk some true crime.
It never seems to get any easier, does it? It doesn't get any easier telling these stories, nor does it get any easier to hear them. We listen and we ask ourselves so many questions along the way. Questions like, why her or why him? What would I have done in this situation? And of course, could this have been avoided? Sometimes the why her or him is answered in the story. The what would I have done part? Well, that's up to you. And could this have been avoided? I'll fill you in. The answer is almost always yes. The overwhelming majority of these cases simply boils down to very bad and horrible person does something very wrong and horribly bad to a good person. But even with answers, it doesn't get any easier. For seven years, we have been researching, writing, and telling these true crime stories. And all of us have certainly learned some very profound things along the way. But often, we still can't make any sense out of this violence or ever get over the innocence lost. Innocence lost is really the most honest way to summarize this week's true crime story. The victim was a 21-year-old college girl, a young woman that was well-liked, hardworking, and just straight up a very good person. Almost too innocent to be 21 years of age. She didn't seek trouble. And she didn't start trouble. She was close with her family and friends. She got good grades. And even though she was a young independent woman, she still checked in with mom and dad. She looked to her older sister for guidance after leaving her parents' home and going off to college. She regularly told her parents, her sibling, and friends what she was up to, where she was going, and with whom she'd be going with. No problems here, right? You would think that would be the case, but we've been doing this long enough to know that the wolf is always at the door. Today's true crime story is about a young woman who should have had the world at her feet she was packing up and preparing to head home for the holidays until she became lost and stolen away forever. Innocence lost, and it doesn't get any easier. This is a tragic cold case story of Leah Hickman, and this is True Crime Garage. Twenty-one-year-old Leah Hickman was a journalism student at Marshall University. Marshall is located in Huntington, West Virginia, and in 2020, 
had more than 11,000 students. Now, this week's true crime story, however, takes place back in 2007. Our first real true sign of trouble here, Captain, is when Leah Hickman goes missing in December of 2007. Now, at the time, Leah shared an apartment located on 8th Avenue in Huntington with her older half-sister, Jessica Vickers. Jessica was Leah's mother's daughter from her first marriage. When our story kicks off in 2007, Leah's father, Ron, or Ronnie, was separated from Leah's mother. Leah was close with her half-sister as they not only lived together, but also spent a lot of time together, as we will see when we get into the timeline leading up to the disappearance. But she was also close with her father and close with her mother as well. Leah is described as a pretty regular college student, but I thought she was much more impressive than just a regular college student who tries hard. Leah was outgoing. She had a lot of friends. She was studious, cared greatly about her grades and education. She was driven and focused. She worked hard both at work and at school. Leah worked at the dress barn. The thing here, Captain, the thing that makes this case to me a real shocker is just how truly innocent Leah was. Like we said in the trailer, she didn't look for trouble. She didn't get into trouble. She didn't party a lot like many of the 20 and 21-year-old college students. Not only was she close with her half-sister, Jessica, she was close with her father and her mother as well. 21-year-old Marshall University student Leah Hickman. Leah Hickman was reported missing on December 16th, 2007. And this is a pretty thorough report when the missing persons report is filed in this case, considering that we have four persons present when the report is filed. Present, we have Leah's mother, Sherry Russell, Leah's half-sister, Jessica Vickers, Leah's best friend, Caitlin Starkey, and another friend who is not named in the reports. She's reported missing to the Huntington Police Department on Sunday, December 16th, 2007. Being reported on this day, however, the alarm was actually raised the previous day on the 15th. This when her half-sister and roommate Jessica Vickers went to the apartment that the two shared looking for her sister. This is going to be leading into the winter break. Leading into the winter break for Marshall University and its students, but also we have Leah's half-sister and roommate, Jessica Vickers, who was planning to go and stay with her boyfriend for what is an indeterminate amount of time. I don't know how many nights she was intending to stay there. There was some talk that Jessica may be going home for the holidays as well. So while we have this, these two living together in this apartment, in Huntington, West Virginia, we also have the fact that both of them are getting ready to leave and take a break, not just from school for Leah, but also take a break from their apartment for a period of time as well. And like we said, Leah was reported missing on the 16th, but alarms were already raised on the 15th. And like Nick was saying, we have four individuals that end up making this phone call so they, they did their due diligence to try to track her down themselves and were unsuccessful. Yeah, the trouble starts here, Captain, on the 15th 
when Jessica Vickers' roommate half-sister to Leah is sent to the apartment looking for her sister. And she's sent there at the request of their mother. Now there, once she gets there, Jessica has already gone and stayed the previous night at her boyfriend's home. When she gets to the apartment that they shared, there she finds Leah's car parked out front of the apartment. This is typical behavior. From my understanding, and I'm going to do my best as we go through this story to describe the apartment, the layout, and how it's situated on the street, because I believe that that is very important to this case. So you have street parking right in front and on the side of this apartment. The apartment building itself is located on a corner and it's on 8th Avenue. She parked right in front of the apartment on the street. However, there is a small parking area that is designated for the apartment's occupants and residents right behind the building itself. But from my understanding, that it is that Leah typically would park on the street in front of the apartment, and this seems to be her preferred parking space. So when Jessica Vickers gets to the apartment on that Saturday looking for her sister, the first thing she's going to notice is Leah's bright yellow Chevy Cavalier parked in street parking right in front of the apartment. She gets into the apartment, quickly discovers Leah's purse and car keys inside of the apartment. The back door, there's a back door to this apartment, which leads to a stairwell. So this just doesn't go out and exit the building. It's a back door from the apartment that goes to a stairwell, a two-story stairwell. Well, I guess it would be a three-story stairwell. I apologize. It's a common space that anybody that has an apartment inside this building can access. That door from their apartment to the stairwell, Jessica says that she found this door to be unlocked. And in fact, many of the reports out there say that the door was slightly open. Again, let me describe this apartment a little bit more thoroughly here, Captain, because this is the key, I believe, to understanding this week's case. I believe that damn near everything about the apartment also would tell us that our suspect pool in this case is probably not that large. Right. With this case and all cases we cover, we'll be posting some of the pictures so you can see this apartment building more in detail on social media. It's an all brick apartment with multiple apartment units in this building. The address was 403 8th Avenue, Huntington, West Virginia. And as we said, it's located at an intersection. This is 8th Avenue and 4th Street. Like the captain said, it's a red brick building. It's brick from head to toe. Out front, where Leah would typically park, facing 8th Avenue, you have a two-story open porch. And if you're looking from the street there, you can see a door. Uh, once you go up a, a few steps, you can see a door, and you can see a big, large window for each one of the four apartment units. So this building has four apartment units in it. You have two on the second floor, two on the ground level floor, two on the right, two on the left. It looks to be rather spacious for apartments. 
Now, from my understanding and from what I've been told, because there are no pictures available online that I could find of the interior of the layout anyway of this building. So that door that you would see from 8th Avenue, if you go in that door, there is a shared space where you would then go and access your front door to your apartment. Then remember at the very back of the building, we also have four doors from each one of the four apartments that goes into that enclosed stairwell, which again is another common space. Why do we need this th- these two different ins and outs to each apartment? Well, you have this really nice front porch area. If you're on the second floor, you have a balcony that oversees that front porch. And then once you're inside, you you access that common area. You can go into your, your front door from there. Your back door to your apartment goes to that stairwell. That stairwell is key because that stairwell will lead to the basement. And in the basement level, you have a shared space with washers and dryers. So that's the laundry area for the four apartments in this building. Now, this is not... From my understanding, Captain, it's not part of a larger apartment complex. This is simply a one building unit. I'm sorry. This is simply one building with four apartment units inside of it. The other thing that's key to this case, too, is the other residents, because at the time, there's practically nobody else living in this building. You have Leah and her sister are living in one unit. You have the man that owns the building itself. He lives in one unit and the other two units were unoccupied at the time. And from some reports, most reports, it's a little confusing because some reports state that there was repairs going on inside the building. Other reports state that there were renovations going on in the two empty units, but both can be true. One could be described as repairs where it's the same thing that's going on and they're actually renovating those other units. From my understanding, Captain, the man that owned the building, he's the only other resident that shares a unit in this building with Leah and her sister, but he's out of town. He's in Florida or someplace warm and sunny for the winter. And so much so that we have the police on record stating that, yes, we checked this other dude out that lived there that owned the building and he was gone, had been gone for days and had a rock-solid alibi, he was many, many miles away in another state. Well, I'm glad you bring that up because since the owner lives part-time in another state, he has maintenance workers, and there was maintenance being done on the apartment during that time period that Leo went missing. Yes, I've seen reports that state that his brother was in charge of overseeing things while he was gone. I don't know if that meant that the brother was living there or staying nights there. My guess is probably not. But also that doesn't mean that his brother was responsible for actually doing the repairs. It might just be, hey, if you get a call, you need to call one of my maintenance workers. Yes, my understanding, the way that it's described is that he was overseeing the building and that this was a regular thing. He would oversee the building when his brother would be gone for these extensive periods of time. And he operated as, you know, a property manager mostly when his brother was gone. And like you said, yes, there are reports of repairs, reports of renovations, maintenance. So there were other people that would be in and out of this apartment building around this same time. Let's dive into a detailed timeline of 
Leah's disappearance. Let's start with Sunday, December 9th. So roughly about a week before she goes missing. We have Leah Hickman's final week of school, which started off routinely. Okay, this is this is a routine thing for her and her sister. We have Leah and her sister Jessica. They would go. I found this to be very interesting, and I think that it pointed out to me how close these two likely were, which makes this this story even more heartbreaking. But not only do they live together, they have a weekly breakfast that they regularly did together at Bob Evans. And this takes place on that Sunday, December 9th. They would typically go and drink hot chocolate. Leah would usually order pie while they were there. And she had some of her favorites, maybe get a cheesecake or a slice of cheesecake while she was there. So on that Sunday, business as usual, the two sisters go out for a nice breakfast together at Bob Evans. The next day, December 10th, we have classes that resumed at Marshall University, and the students were in the process of taking finals this week. Let's fast forward a little bit to December 13th. This is that Thursday. That day was a trip for Leah to go visit her mother, Sherry Russell. She went to visit her mom as she would regularly, but I guess this was somewhat of a a less routine visit because it was for her to check up on her mother. I guess her mother had some health test recently and they were all kind of worried about what the results of those tests would be on this Thursday. Leah also spoke with her best friend, Caitlin Starkey. They discussed making plans for Friday night. That leads us to Friday, December 14th. According to Jessica Vickers, Leah's half sister, she says that she woke Leah up on that Friday morning, this in preparation for a trip together to the Huntington Mall. The sisters ate breakfast and then headed out for Christmas shopping. They were going to do some Christmas shopping together. The sister, Jessica, she reports that they arrived at the the mall promptly around 9 a.m. About two hours later, around 11 a.m., they left the mall and returned back to their apartment. Jessica said that the trip back was special as she would go on to describe for the papers, a recent email that Leah had sent. Jessica praised her sister for improvements in her writing skills. So they're having this moment. They went Christmas shopping together and they're having a bit of a bonding moment. She says, or recalls on the way home from the mall that Friday morning. That will take us up to 1:30 PM. This is when Leah calls her mother. Her mother is busy cleaning at the time. They did speak briefly. Leah spoke to her mom about coming home that evening, even though she had scheduled work the following day. Her mother convinces her to meet her at the Huntington Mall later that evening. Now, around 3 p.m., Leah calls her father, Ron Hickman. He's at work, and he would later describe the phone call, this conversation, as Leah checking in. Unfortunately, this would be their last telephone conversation. At 3.30, Jessica returned home for lunch. She packs up a few things for a weekend stay at her boyfriend's. She said that when she's there at the apartment, she sees Leah. Leah is in the kitchen washing dishes. She said that they spoke briefly 
Leah seemed excited about her grades. She was getting good grades at the time. And so she was excited about putting in the hard work, getting good grades. She was looking forward to the holiday season. They also discussed their upcoming Sunday morning breakfast at Bob Evans. And then Jessica leaves. This is when we really need to start focusing in on the timeline here because the alarm is raised on that Saturday and Leah is reported missing on that Sunday. It's really at this time when we start backing into events and known events of Leah, it's around this time that we're going to see that she likely, whatever happened to Leah went down that evening and she was probably actually missing starting Friday evening, Friday night. So let's start with 5.30 p.m. This is when Leah goes to a local McDonald's. It's my understanding, Captain, that this McDonald's is a six-minute round trip. So roughly three minutes there, three minutes back to go pick up some fast food for a quick dinner that night. Yeah, there's actually a map of this, and it's, it's very close, a couple blocks away. I've also been told that this McDonald's is no longer in existence. So if you are trolling on a map or if you're driving in the area looking for the closest McDonald's to this 403 8th Avenue apartment, the one that we are discussing right now is no longer there. I could be wrong, but I believe that the building is still there, but it's not a McDonald's, obviously. So Leah talked to her friend, and it's always just reported as friend. I believe that this is Caitlin Starkey that they're talking about. And I think that I've seen this in one of the reports that it was, in fact, Caitlin Starkey, who we've already brought up. So she talks to her friend via via her cell phone. So Leah has her own cell phone. She's talking to her friend about cleaning supplies and plans that she she planned to spend some time cleaning that evening. And this would be the last conversation between Leah and her friend. Yeah, what a sad situation. Around this same time, we have Leah's mother and her stepson who arrive at the Huntington Mall. Remember, Leah is supposed to be meeting them at this mall. The plan was for Leah to call when she arrived at the mall, but unfortunately, the stepson forgot his cell phone in the car. Leah had her mother's phone because of a bad battery. Leah never arrived at the mall. So between 6.30 p.m. and 7 p.m. that night, the mother-stepson duo, they leave the mall. And this is when mother decides to call her daughter from the car because she's concerned that her daughter didn't show up. And the call right. goes straight to voicemail. So the mother continued to call Leah Hickman over and over again through the 11 p.m. hour, but gets the same result each time going to voicemail every single time. And she said that she just initially feared that Leah was mad, that maybe Leah had made the trip to the mall, gets there, tries to call, but because the cell phone is left in the car, doesn't get a hold of anybody and thinks that oh, they got their wires crossed or she got stood up or whatever happened and people weren't where they were supposed to be and maybe Leah got upset that she had to make the trip for nothing. Yeah, I'm not going to fault her for not understanding technology, but the technology at the time, she would have been able to see if Leah called. Just to be clear, they get back to the car. Leah's mom is using her 
son's cell phone to call technically her own cell phone. This part is very tricky about the story here, Captain, because this is the only report that says that Leah has her mom's cell phone. Other reports state that Leah had her own cell phone, but I guess both reports can be right. She could right. have her cell phone and she could have her mother's cell phone. I'm going to just go out on a limb here. If she tried to call her own cell phone, let's say Leah was borrowing that cell phone. She tried to call, goes straight to voicemail. That's a red flag. We don't know if she showed up to the mall. So that's a red flag. Now we're calling. It's going straight to voicemail. She probably tried calling Leah's phone as well. And if there was a battery issue, obviously that would go to voicemail as well. But as a parent, I would think that this is red flag after red flag, and I'd be getting pretty worried. There are some people online who have stated they don't understand why the mother didn't drive out to the apartment that night. I don't know. I don't get the vibe that we're frantically calling over and over and over again. I get the vibe that it's more of, I'll give her a call here at seven. I'll give her a call at eight, uh, maybe nine, nine thirty, a handful of times. She is a grown woman. She's 21 years of age. And we also don't know their relationship. Could, could right. it be a situation where we have mom who says, I just figured she was mad. That could be something that's fairly normal. Maybe they've had plans that got busted up before and, and Leah didn't take it too well. What we do know that happened is is the phone calls take place. But also that same night, Captain, we have Leah Hickman, who has plans. They're kind of loose plans, loosey-goosey plans here with her friend, Caitlin Starkey. Right. And Leah does not arrive for those plans as well. From my understanding, on that Thursday, the day earlier, when Starkey and Leah Hickman spoke, Caitlin Starkey works at a local nightclub. Leah had said, Hey, on Friday night, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to be doing some cleaning. I'm going to be packing up some clothes to go home for the winter break, but I'm probably not coming home until, or not going home until the following day. So regardless of what I got going on this Friday, I'll swing by where you work and drop in and see you briefly Friday night. That doesn't happen. And so the friend Caitlin tries reaching out to Leah as well. And of course, she's getting the same result. She's getting Leah Hickman's voicemail. This holiday season, give a gift to your loved ones that makes them feel special and unique. Give everyone you care about StoryWorth. StoryWorth is an online service that helps you and your loved ones preserve precious memories and stories for years to come. Every week, StoryWorth emails your relative or friend a thought-provoking question of your choice from their vast pool of options. Each unique prompt asks questions you've never thought to ask, like, What's the bravest thing you've ever done in your life? After one year, StoryWorth compiles all of your loved one's stories, including photos, into a beautiful keepsake book that you'll be able to share and revisit for generations to come. Reading the weekly stories helps connect you with loved ones no matter how near or far apart you are. I've very much enjoyed my experience with StoryWorth. 
This is my story, and I'm creating a keepsake book that I can share with friends and family for generations to come. And I need to give this gift to my parents. I love them dearly, and I want to preserve and cherish their memory as long as I can. With StoryWorth, I am giving those I love most a thoughtful, personal gift from the heart and preserving their memories and stories for years to come. Go to storyworth.com slash TCG and save $10 on your first purchase. That's storyworth.com slash TCG to save $10 on your first purchase. Have you ever thought about why your wireless bill is so damn expensive? It's all just radio waves, and how much can a radio wave really cost? Seems like Big Wireless got together and decided, $100 a month? I think they'll buy it. What choice do they have? Now, thanks to Mint Mobile, you do have a choice. For a limited time, all phone plans from Mint Mobile are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. That's unlimited talk, text, and data for $15 a month. Say bye-bye to your overpriced wireless plan's jaw-dropping monthly bills and unexpected overages. All plans come with unlimited talk and text, plus high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. So ditch overpriced wireless with Mint Mobile's limited-time deal and get premium wireless service for just 15 bucks a month. I made the switch. I'm enjoying it. The secret is in the sauce over at Mint Mobile. 5G for free, no extra overhead, flexible plan options. Your unlocked device and current phone number are always welcome at Mint Mobile. I made the switch. I love it. You should do the same. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash TCG. That's mintmobile.com slash TCG. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash TCG. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Everyone loves a good family mystery, especially one with as many twists and turns as June's Journey, a hidden object mystery game with a captivating detective story. It takes you back to the glamour of the 1920s with a diverse cast of characters. You'll step into the role of June Parker and search for hidden clues to uncover the mystery of her sister's murder. Use your observation skills to quickly uncover key pieces of information that lead to chapters of mystery danger, and romance, and customize your very own luxurious estate island. Think expansive gardens and beautiful buildings. Collect scraps of information to fill your photo album and learn more about each character. And you can chat and play with or against other players by joining a detective club. Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. June needs your help, detective. Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. All right, we are back, ladies and gents. Cheers, everybody. Cheers to you, Captain, and happy holidays to everybody out there. When we left off, we have family and friends who are trying to get in touch with Leah Hickman. 
they are unsuccessful trying to get in touch with her. Now, we do have Leah Hickman, who is on social media at the time. She was on the old MySpace back in 2007. And it is reported that Leah Hickman last logged on to her MySpace page sometime on that Friday. Unfortunately for these reports, no specific time is given. I do want to circle back to the McDonald's visit because there's a couple of things here. We had pointed out that it's about a three-minute drive to McDonald's and a three-minute drive coming back. One of the reports out there, and I think that this is probably the more likely report because it's a similar report. It's just a little more detailed. It says at 5.40 p.m., Leah's on the phone with her friend on a cell phone call to her friend saying that she is going to McDonald's to get some food, get some dinner for that night. This is the last phone call that is made from Leah's phone. And what, what again is difficult is we have the report of, well, she was borrowing her mother's phone. So is this the last it's reported as this is the last made call from her phone, her phone, not her mom's phone. So Right. The mom's phone thing is all very weird to me. Now, what's interesting, though, is we do know that Leah made it to the McDonald's and she made it home successfully from the McDonald's because later police would find the McDonald's bag, food consumed, and the receipt for the purchase. And the receipt time is 5.40 p.m. So that goes along with the idea that she's on the phone with her friend at that same time, while she's going through the drive-through, we know that she makes it home and she was home at least a long enough period of time to consume the food and throw it away. But to me, this is the most important time period because let's say a little bit before six is when I think whatever happened, happened. And that's when you need to start looking at the inner circle their alibis for around that time period, I'd say around that time period to an hour to a two hour window and look at the inner circle and then start looking at her outer circle of friends. The difficult thing here for law enforcement is always going to be one, the neighborhood, you know, act of random violence and also that she went to college. And so her interactions with how many students were she was she in class with? How many students did she have interaction with on a weekly basis? Well, and it looks to me, Captain, that from her 8th Avenue apartment to the Huntington Mall, we're talking about an 18 to 20 minute drive. And right. pay attention to our timeline here. We're saying 540. She's got a receipt timestamp from the McDonald's restaurant that is three a three minutes drive from her apartment. The timeline states that between 6.30 and 7 p.m., her mom and stepbrother are leaving the mall. They've left the mall and they've started to call Leah at this time to figure out what happened. You know, did we, oh, we're sorry. We screwed things up. We left the phone in the car. Where are you? That sort of thing. Those calls are going to voicemail. You have to believe, given the time frame it would take her to get to the mall, she likely was going to be leaving her apartment rather soon right? to make it to the mall in time to meet up with her mother. Yeah, she, she returned home, but if everything had gone as planned, 
it would stand a reason that she would have left the apartment. So I think you have to be right here that something happened between 5.40 p.m. You know, you would say 6.30, 7 o'clock when they start to call Leah, but you could probably push that back to 6.10, 6.15. We have a really short window of time where something happened. Something right. went down that stopped and prevented Leah from going about her business. Yeah, and and real quick, and I don't know if you can answer this, off the top of your head or if you can find it in your notes real quick. But so we roughly have this a little bit before six o'clock, a little bit after six o'clock. That's the time window of when we think something happened. When is it that her half sister gets to the apartment? It's the following day, right? That's correct. That's correct. And it's like early, late morning, early afternoon. We don't have an exact time for it, but we, we can narrow it down to that part. So, Without sounding too suspicious of family members here. Right. Because that's a that's a, a tightrope that I do not enjoy balancing on. But I've always wanted to know more about that. I'm using air quotes here. That phone call or those phone calls going from mother to daughter, from stepbrother to stepsister, the calls trying to get in touch with Leah. I'm not saying that they didn't happen, but... What I'm saying is with this being such a crucial part in our timeline, I am very curious. I was very curious to see what cell phone information and technology the Huntington Police Department accessed in this case to verify statements given to the police. You could easily check to see if those phone calls were made. If those phone calls weren't made, we got a whole different set of circumstances here. Well, one also could argue that we're still in the infant stages of social media. 2007, we were definitely in the beginning stages. So I wouldn't put it past law enforcement to not check that information because a lot of people at that time that were on MySpace were using that as a, a text message device. So is it possible that she was communicating with somebody through MySpace and not through her, her cell phone or through her mother's cell phone? And listen to what goes on that day. So on the Saturday, December 15th, we have the sister who comes back to the apartment looking for Leah. We don't have an exact time of when she arrives there. Again, it's reported as the morning time she arrives at the apartment. This is when she finds her sister's purse and keys and car are all where she would expect them to be. However, her sister is nowhere to be found at the apartment. And then she finds this back door unlocked in a jar that goes to the stairwell. At 1.01 p.m., Jessica, the half-sister, posts a message on Leah's MySpace page that reads, Oh, sister, where are you? Triple question mark. Whatever time she arrives there that morning, she has enough time to investigate the situation, the apartment and such, and then have enough time to sit, stew and worry, and then make this post onto her MySpace page that says, oh, sister, where are you? I know that sometimes it's uncomfortable for people to take a look at the family. I don't think so. I think that's out of respect for their loved one that they have lost. If somebody in my family was murdered or missing, look at us, look at the family first, rule us in or out, and then you can move on with the investigation. 
And I would hope that my family members would be as cooperative as they could be with law enforcement so they could start looking in the correct direction. I find this post to be kind of silly and suspicious. Oh, sister, can you can you read it again so we have it for, verbatim again? Oh, sister, where are you? Triple question mark. This seems a little strange to me where you could just put, hey, we're looking for you or hey, answer your phone or something like that. But this oh, sister seems a little bizarre to me. Again, if she's extremely concerned, if she's panicking, she's probably not really worried about choice of words here. Right. The other thing, too, when I read it, it almost sounds like frustration, like, oh, I've looked high and low for the last couple of hours for my sister. This doesn't make any sense. It almost sounds a little frustrated. I think the big red flag here goes down at five or goes up, if you will, at 5 p.m. on that Saturday. This is when she does not show up, when Leah does not show up for her scheduled work shift at the dress bar. Right. She was only supposed to be working about four or five hours that night. Now, keep in mind, this is middle of December, going into the holiday, you know, approaching Christmas. Holiday shopping is a priority for most people at this time. So this would be a busy shift. This would be a, a busy store. She doesn't arrive for this shift, and she's worked there for five or six months at this point. Later, supervisors and managers went on record saying it was completely out of the norm for Leah to not show up for work, number one. Number two, she would call if she was just going to be a minute or two late. Right. So when she doesn't show up and there's no communication at all, this is the big major red flag here. And I'm sure that this was for the family as well, because look, if you return to the apartment, there's a high probability that there's been many times that sister returns to the apartment and the other sister is not there. There's probably been even a one or two times that maybe she gets back to the apartment and her sister's car is there, but her sister is not there. Right. And so you look around, you're trying to call, everything's going to voicemail. Again, it may just be frustration. Oh, well, she's she's probably with one of her friends. Somebody probably picked her up and damn it, she left this back door unlocked. I wish she would pick up her phone so we could figure it out. But then, boom, she doesn't go to work. And now you're starting to go, well, she's probably not with a friend. She's probably not just out doing something. Now it appears that she's missing. Yeah, it's probably time for the family to hit the panic button. Well, and during the course of this time period, this is going to take us into that Sunday. Now, what we do know that happens is that Leah's mother, Sherry Russell, attempted to place a missing persons report with the West Virginia state police. They encouraged her to make the report with on the more local level in Huntington. So it's on that Sunday where we have mom, sister, and two friends all present when the missing persons report is filed. This is what you want to happen, right? In these cases, we see so many times where there's a, a huge delay in reporting that somebody's missing, or there's a not much of a we give a damn factor from the police, but this is this is about as close as you can get it. I would prefer that she had been officially reported missing that Saturday night, but it takes place that Sunday. So again, it's relatively quickly. The police clearly they care. They're in there taking the report. And to 
top that off, you have four individuals that are rather close to our missing person that are there to answer questions and flesh out a timeline for police right there when the report is being taken. Absolutely. Over the course of the next few days, we're going to have police doing everything that we would expect them to be doing. They're going to be interviewing people closest to Leah. They're going to be canvassing the area around the apartment, probably checking in even with the university and with Leah's work at the dress barn. Talking to all persons involved, we do get the dress barn that announces a $10,000 reward for information about Leah Hickman's whereabouts. This comes out on that Wednesday. So things are getting bleak, right? Things are getting dark where they were once concerned for a missing person. Now they're starting to fear the worst has happened. Unfortunately, it looks like a lot of those suspicions were confirmed on Friday, December 21st. And this is when the Huntington police find the body of a white female in the laundry room area of Leah Hickman's apartment building. Of course, the authorities at the time at this discovery believe that it is, in fact, Leah's body. But until she is conclusively identified, they are not making that announcement to the public. Yeah, this kind of upsets me a little bit about law enforcement and and hear me out on this what i've learned and again i'm not even the second smartest guy in this room but what we've learned through these cases look at the john benet ramsey case you show up it's a missing person report you check that house thoroughly and they could have done that and they they would have i think they would have had a little more information and could have been more on top of this situation if they would have found her body on December 16th. I can understand anyway why it went down the way that it did, but it's very disappointing because it's obvious that she was killed in that building somewhere. Right. To me, the concealing the body inside the building itself is whoever killed her had a big problem. And that big problem was hiding the body. Hiding the body was a big problem because You got to get it out of the building. You got to transport it for whatever reason. Whoever is responsible decided that their best bet or the safest way for them to try to conceal this crime is to conceal the body inside the building itself. So this makes it sound like right when you when you first hear this statement that I just read to you. It makes it sound like, wow, the cops and the family and, and the friends, they didn't do a very good job. Her body's found in the laundry room. Well, it's a little more. I shouldn't even say a little. It's quite more complicated than that. Yes. Yes. And and this is where I give them a little bit of a pass. But again, like I said, I think if I'm law enforcement and I'm showing up just knowing what I know from doing this podcast, I am searching high and low in that residence. So I've received a very good description of this basement because I think that this is one of the keys to this case. So in the basement, you have a crawl space, which this crawl space is located in the front portion of that basement. So the portion that is closest to eighth Avenue, then in the larger portion, which is open, it's an open area accessible to all that live in the apartment building for washing machines and dryers. So people can do their laundry there in the basement. 
this crawl space is accessed through a door. So there's these doors on this front wall of the basement. One of the doors is a crawl space. And now this, again, I already pointed out that this is a spacious, this is a big building, that these apartments appear to be quite spacious. The information I have, Captain, is that the crawl space was about one third of that basement area. And two thirds of the basement was that laundry area. So we're talking about a good amount of space as far as a crawl space goes. But the crawl space is in the front towards 8th Avenue. And there it's about the door itself is about 40 to 48 inches above the basement floor. We have an opening that's only about 28 inches by 36 inches. So not not a very big opening. But also you have, it goes back for several feet. I've been told that it goes back anywhere from 15 to 30 feet from that little door. So what what is on record is that they opened that door and looked in those doors that were at the front of that basement at least one or two times before she was eventually discovered in one of the crawl spaces. Everyone's saying the same thing. If you opened up the door and you looked in, you would not have been able to see her from the door. In fact, the the space itself probably looked like it was empty. And it was not until after a week's time passed from the Friday that they start worrying about Leah that her body is discovered because somebody eventually got into the space and went back in and crawled to it. Somebody, whoever placed her in that crawl space, not only placed her there to hide her, but she was wrapped up in plastic and then concealed all the way to the very front of that crawl space closest to the eighth Avenue, but furthest from the crawl space door. Right. And basically everything I've heard is they weren't able to see her until they actually lit up that crawl space. Mm -hmm. And so in their defense, you know, you go in that room and you look around and even look into the crawl space, you're not going to see her until you're able to shine some light onto that area. But this creates for an interesting aspect of the crime itself. Right. One, it's been said by many people that you wouldn't know that that space even exists unless you had some good information, extensive information and knowledge about the building itself. What we have here, Captain, is you you sit there and we've told so many of these stories. We've reviewed so many of these cases. My mind first went to where I'm sure your mind went to. She went to McDonald's. Some creep saw her, decided to follow her, figured out how to get in the apartment and then did something terrible and and then fled the scene. However, you factor in the aspect of, well, she's concealed in an area where everybody's saying that you had to have extensive knowledge of the building to, to know to even put her there, that uh, a more random suspect and random attack seems much less likely. Yeah, I, I think it seems less likely, but it's not out of the realm of possibility that somebody goes into her apartment, murders her in her apartment, and then freaks out and says, well, now I got to do something to conceal the body, which makes not a lot of sense to me No, if it's a random person, because why wouldn't just you just leave. leave the body there? Yeah, they would just leave. Yeah. And so I unless mean, this, the attack took place in the laundry area, which is a possibility. 
because like you said, she's coming home. She's going to eat her food. Maybe she's going to toss something in the dryer real quick, or maybe she's going to do a load of laundry real quick. That that's one of the things I'd like to know. Did they find any of her laundry in the laundry room? Well, and that's the problem with this case. There's been very little information that's been put out and, and it's now unfortunately coming up on 15 years, the 15 year anniversary of this sad day of when she was noticed to be missing is coming up this week. Here's a couple things, a couple details that we know. One, she told her friend, she told at least one other person that she would be doing laundry that evening. Right. Two, when the apartment is found empty the following day, she already has one bag, one piece of luggage that is packed up. So she was going to return home, leave the apartment, visit mom and dad. And keep in mind, they live separate. So she's probably making more than one stop. And she's going to be gone for several days, several nights was the original idea. And I know that when I'm going away on a trip or a vacation or anything like that, I'm usually the day before I leave, I'm busy doing some laundry because I need to get clothes together for the upcoming days or week that's ahead. And so we know that she said she was going to be doing some laundry. There's a chance that she was given that the back door was found unlocked and, and ajar. And later the sister, Jessica, she's telling police and, and family and friends, look, it was not uncommon for us because it's cumbersome, right? You're trying to take baskets of laundry down two flights of stairs to the basement to do your laundry there. And she said it was very common for us to leave the door unlocked, but also leave it. So it's just open enough that you could kick it open with your foot when you're coming back up the steps with all of your clothes. Right. So there's everything's in place to be setting the table for her to be doing laundry that evening. One thing that's a little weird to me though, it seems like, okay, maybe she threw some clothes in before she went to McDonald's and that's why she had to come back and didn't just eat on the way to the mall that she needed to change her clothes or needed to get something out of the dryer when she returned to the apartment. So maybe she, she gets back and boom, she's in the laundry room rather quickly. But the other thing that's interesting here is that's such a small window of time for when she was supposed to be to the mall. So if everybody's telling us the truth and if everything was supposed to play out the way that it didn't play out, right? she, she should have been leaving her apartment relatively soon after she got back from that visit to the McDonald's. And, but it's difficult because she's 21 years old. And is it possible I've done this before? Hey, I'm going to see my family tomorrow or in a couple of days or whenever I'm going to go spend some time with them. I don't need to go on this mall trip or I've changed my mind. I don't want to go. Right. But, but again, makes a lot of sense. Then you're attacked in the laundry room and then that laundry room is connected to this other room that has the crawl space, and that's where you're ultimately placed. But what do we know from when they found her? I mean, she's wrapped in this plastic, and and she is strangled to death, right? Well, and that's another thing that's interesting to this investigation as well, is later the police would be telling us that we we being law enforcement, they are pretty convinced they know who is responsible or the, the person's responsible in this case. And so they, even though this was a a case that was getting some national attention, this case was getting some, some national attention in the timeframe that she was missing when she was still missing. 
even though they had the the national attention, you know, missing schoolgirl, college girl goes missing, and it's certainly a big story in West Virginia, because they thought that they knew who was responsible or, and I think this is probably the, the better thing to say here, because this is where my suspicions go. I think that they had narrowed it down to a very small suspect pool. Right. And I think the apartment tells us and dictates why that is. And we'll get into that in just a second, but they actually refused to give any information. They did confirm that it was the body of Leah Hickman that they had found, but they didn't give any information for several days. I don't think it was until the second week or middle of January, the following month, that they tell that they come out and hold a press conference and say, look, she was strangled to death and there was no sexual assault that took place in this case, that she was strangled to death and somebody tried to conceal her body. I think that they probably kept that out of the papers in the beginning, hoping that because of the situation, like we, you and I just discussed, some creep following her home from McDonald's or some creep accessing the apartment somehow and and finding Leah there and it being a random attack, I think they wanted to leave some of those details to themselves in case they had someone coming out of the woodwork that really had nothing to do with it. Somebody that comes off the streets and says, yeah, I killed that college girl. Yeah, I agree and disagree with you on the the crux of this case lies in that laundry room. I agree on one level because I think what this layout of the laundry room and the layout of this apartment tells us is that this person would have to have a certain level of physicality to take a body, wrap it in plastic. One, if I'm law enforcement, where the F did this plastic come from? Right. Did it come from in the building? Did it come from out of the building? To me, that you know points to you know, maybe a maintenance worker. I mean, if you Google student killed and then Google gives you some suggestions, one of the things is it'll say... Uh, Student strangled by roommate. Okay, if I'm law enforcement, I'm looking into that angle. Student murdered by maintenance worker. Looking into that angle. Student murdered by homeless man. Looking into that angle. And and then the other one that becomes a little more difficult is student killed by stalker. And like I said, when you're on campus, you have a lot of interactions with multiple people. And is there somebody that was just, you know, infatuated with Leah that we just don't know about. The other thing that we don't know about, and this is not throwing shade at Leah at all, but she's home alone and she knows that her, she knows that her half sister is going to be spending the night with the boyfriend. And is there somebody that she was having a relationship with that was kind of on the, on the DL. And that's why I'd want to know what the communication was through my space. It could be as simple as some guy she was talking to online says, hey, yeah, we, we should hang out. Well, I'm going to be going home soon. Hey, well, why don't you swing by, you know, because nobody's home and and I don't really have plans. That would make sense on some level of why she'd break plans with her mother and why she would break plans to go see her friend that night. Well, and that is exactly right, Captain. The devil is in the details. The devil is hiding in those details or may be. Now, as far as the MySpace thing goes, it could simply have been to log on and just check her page again without us having a timestamp for that and 
here's the concern I have. I'm not going to lie. I wonder if we're not being provided a timestamp because maybe they don't know. And I'll get into my questions about the investigation here in a minute, but it could just be she logged in that morning, that Friday morning, and and the MySpace login has nothing to do with anything. But that's also why I think law enforcement says a suspect or possible suspects, because again, the physicality, you have to then, if this attack, even if it took place in the laundry room, you have to then move that body to a separate room. And then you have to lift that body up into a crawl space. And then you have to be able to push that body back far enough that people aren't going to be able to see it unless it's illuminated. Yes. There's lots of difficulties with putting the body where it was later discovered. There's a lot. And that's why I wanted to get detailed information about that. The opening to the crawl space, the crawl space itself and the basement, because we review her missing persons poster and they have Leah listed at five, two to five, three, 120 to 130 pounds. So to lift that weight 40 to 48 inches, and that's an approximate. Mm -hmm. I spoke to several people. That's the approximation that I was given on the distance between the basement floor and the opening for that crawl space. Now, the people I spoke with, they agreed that 40 inches, some people in that group thought it could have been higher that the opening would have been higher up off of the floor. Right. 40 inches is the very minimum amount that I was given. Many believe that it was at least 48 inches from the floor to possibly even five feet from the floor. I, I could also see a reason for somebody other than the sister being responsible in placing the body where it was later found. You're, you may just simply be hoping to create a a period of time where nobody has found her yet. You're really just trying to add a buffer at getting as much between you and the investigation as possible. And so the thing that's tricky about this case, and I'm glad that you brought up the half sister, because when you really start to look at the case and look at the words that the, the detectives are saying here in this case, again, very little information coming out. But what they're choosing to tell the public makes it sound like they've really narrowed it to a a small suspect pool. So it, it says here, this is the exact words verbatim. Investigators believe Hickman died in a targeted attack carried out by someone familiar with the layout of her 8th Avenue apartment. They have a working theory about the person's identity, but they lack evidence needed to prove guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. So they have said we have physical evidence, forensic physical evidence in this case that one day we believe will lead to an arrest and a conviction. However, we need technology to catch up to what we have in this case to help us put away the person that we believe or persons that we believe are responsible. Somebody that had that was familiar with her apartment building is one thing to say. There are other reports that they have said that the person would have had to had extensive knowledge of that building to have carried this out in the manner that it was carried out. Well, think about that immediately. That takes us to only a small amount of people, right? 
We have the half-sister. We have the man that owns the building. We have his brother or whoever was overseeing the property for him in his absence. We have the renovations or maintenance or work that was being performed in the building itself. So those individuals, I would believe, even if they just were new on the job that week or the week before, would probably have some extensive knowledge about the building itself and the workings of the building because they are there to repair things or renovate things. They very likely would have been aware of this crawl space. And then you have anybody that had previously lived there or visited there a lot. And here's the thing. When you go visit somebody at their apartment, rarely do you find yourself in the basement laundry room poking around and and know about this, this crawl space. So one thing that's weird here, Captain, is we have a previous boyfriend. Dun, dun, dun. Now, I've been told by several people that Leah at the time was not dating anybody and she wasn't known to have any types of serious relationships. And I think that that is why, unless there was some kind of secret rendezvous that we don't know about, that police are pretty firm in their belief that the building, the apartment building itself is what connects the attacker to the victim here. Now, One potential person that we haven't discussed yet is an ex-boyfriend of Leah's half-sister, Jessica. This ex-boyfriend lived with Jessica at one point in the apartment for, this report says, two years. Now, I did a little checking on this individual, and I'm going to leave his name out of it for now. But I did a little checking on this individual, and he actually lived in that building prior to to seeing and dating Jessica. So he lived in this apartment. He's older. Jessica is older than Leah by a few years. Right. And this ex-boyfriend of Jessica's was older than Jessica. And he had lived in this apartment building for years before the two of them end up in a relationship. So that guy had years worth of knowledge about the building itself. Now, how does he factor into it here? Well, He was shipped off overseas to serve this country. He comes back, and from my understanding, the breakup between Jessica and him took place while he was overseas, after he had been shipped out. He still had some personal belongings that were being kept at that apartment. The way that it's reported is as such, that these personal belongings were boxed up And they were placed in that common area, in the laundry room area of the building for him to pick them up and retrieve these items. It's also been reported that he did not get along with Leah because she did not approve of the way that he treated her sister. And it's believed that she was really the one pushing Jessica to end the relationship with this guy. Now, Regarding his personal property, the reports are varied and they get a little weird and it was too difficult for me to decipher which one is true. So I'll give it to you. Yeah, they're a little wonky donkey. Yeah, a little little cattywampus, as they say in the biz. Many reports state that these items were eventually thrown out, that they were placed in this common space. And when work started going on in the building, that when Leah was asked, she said, hey, he hasn't picked up this stuff yet. Just go ahead and throw it out. And that the workers may have thrown thrown out these items. The other report is that those items were still there and they were boxed up in that laundry room area. But again, all, all reports state that it's believed that this guy and Leah did not get along. 
It's also reported that he still had keys to the apartment. So there are people out there that have posed this theory. And I think it's one that we should discuss, not just discuss. I'm sure it's one that hopefully the Huntington police looked into it. But the theory has been maybe this dude shows up to retrieve his items and he interacts with Leah because Jessica's not there. The two already don't get along. Does she go, oh, well, we put your stuff down in the laundry room. Let's go down there and see if we can find it. And then, boom, it's not there. And it's, oh, I told the guys they could throw it out. You never came to pick it up. And then they get into some kind of fight. Or again, I mean, the other thing, too, is it takes a lot normally for somebody to say, I don't like your boyfriend. I don't approve of your boyfriend. I don't approve of the way he's treating you. So to me, again, we have no evidence of this, but, you know, a boyfriend being too controlling, maybe being verbally abusive, maybe physically abusive, where I think her half-sister could help this investigation. And I'm sure she's talked to police about this individual, but what was his interaction with her and what were the things that her sister didn't approve of? The, the direction of your investigation needs to be this. One, we need background checks on anybody that would have been working in that building. Two, we need to confirm if the possibility of of ex-boyfriend, Jessica's ex-boyfriend, still having keys to the apartment, if that is in fact true. You know, check with the building owner, check with anybody that's in charge of running the apartments. Did he ever turn in keys to to the owner or to the landlord? Do we have the sister or anybody else saying that he turned in keys. How, how factual is that statement that this guy still had access to the apartment building? Well, I agree with that, but I also would state if you are Leah and this guy shows up and knocks on your door, you know, he's been gone for a while. He comes back. He's going to retrieve his stuff. He knocks on the door. I don't see any reason why she wouldn't let him in. And then they would go through the, the back door so they can go to the laundry room to retrieve his items. And then where did the attack take place? So I did reach out to the Huntington police department and the detective bureau. And I was armed with a few questions that I had about the evidence and about the investigation itself. Unfortunately, nobody has returned my call. So I don't have any answers for those questions. And I, and I'm going to state this and usually I'm backing the women and men in blue here. And I'm not saying that they've done anything wrong. I reached out to them last week. And for all I know, we could turn off the microphones and my phone rings right away. And it's HPD calling to, to ask me why I called about the Leah Hickman. Well, it might take them over a week to find the message. (laughs) Well, let's hope that's not the case if they're in charge of solving homicides, but The statement that they've released to the public says the Huntington Police Department wants to ensure Leah's family and the community as a whole that the investigation into the events surrounding her death and the person or persons responsible remains active. This case also has been reviewed extensively during the past 14 years by various detectives in an attempt to allow a fresh set of eyes to review the facts and evidence that has been obtained. Any tip or lead received on this case always have been and always will be pursued vigilantly. That is a statement directly from the Huntington Police Department. And before I get into any more of my thoughts and feelings on the case, 
I do want to make sure that we point out that police ask anyone with information about the case to call the Huntington Police Department at 304-696-4420. We will include that number in today's show notes, and you can also submit a tip anonymously through their tip line at 304-696-4444. We'll include that number as well. So here's the questions that I have, Captain. We talked about all the stuff that were found in the apartment. We talked about her, her it was a beautiful, bright yellow Chevy Cavalier that was parked out front of the apartment building. We talked about the items that were found in the apartment, but there were a couple of items that have been reported. It's been reported that these items were missing. One, Leah's cell phone, which we already know how complicated that is because there's talk about her borrowing her mom's phone. But the reports are that Leah's cell phone is missing. I've never seen a description anywhere of what kind of cell phone it is, what kind of brand it is, nothing like that. I did a little bit of snooping around, boots on the ground type investigation, and I found one statement that it was a flip phone. That's the best description I've received on her phone. The other item that has been reported as missing was a brown jacket or coat of Leah's that had a fur collar. These items, again, according to the newspapers, are missing. I wanted to learn more about these items. I wanted to learn more about the plastic, like you pointed out earlier, and those were going to be my primary questions for the detective. Now, again, they've been very hush-hush in this case, so who knows if they would have answered any of them at all. Again, it does appear to be a very active case, so maybe they're not going to answer those questions. But I also, I also wanted to know a few things about cell phone technology, right? I mentioned earlier, I wanted to know how factual were those phone calls, those supposed phone calls from the stepbrother and from mother from their visit to the mall that night to Leah's phone. Did those, did those calls actually happen? You pointed out something very obvious, but also very key. If Leah had attempted to call her stepbrother, there would have been indication on her phone, on his phone, that she tried to call them. And then the other thing is, I wanted to know, did they ping her cell phone, Leah's cell phone at all? Because if whoever is responsible for her murder, and I'm with you, given where her body was found, I think it would have taken two people to put her there, number one. So at least one other person knows what happened. But did anybody bother to ping her cell phone, if it was truly missing since the time that she's been one, she's been missing herself. And two, even after they found the body, we know sometimes these guys, you look at a case like long Island serial killer. We know that that person was accessing a victim's phone well after the fact, could this creep have been calling and, and listen to listening to her outgoing message? Could this creep have been calling and checking her voicemail and listening to the messages that were left for Leah while these people were looking for her? Did this cell phone ping anywhere of interest? Because you would look very guilty if you were in possession of that phone. Or did this individual make a huge mistake and, and give that coat to somebody as a gift? I think given the attack, no sexual assault, the strangulation, I think given the attack, it looks to me, and again, this is just my assessment from 30,000 feet, you know, over an overview of everything here, but it would look to me like this is probably something that might've been spontaneous, unplanned, something happened, something went down that, that caused a, a fight between 
Leah and somebody else. And in a fit of rage, somebody strangled her and then may have had to reach out to somebody else to come and help them clean up a messy situation later. There are reports out there that not only do they have physical evidence, you know, we've already kind of covered that and, and, and they've not gone into great detail about this, but they have physical forensic evidence that they say that they believe will solve this case one day once technology catches up to it. The other question I had for the police department is, well, where was that physical evidence collected from? Was it collected from the crawl space, from the plastic, from the Mm -hmm. laundry room, or from her apartment? Because you're right, Captain, if the attack and the murder went down in the apartment, now getting her to where she was placed is even more cumbersome and even more difficult. Now we got flights of stairs involved, and we also have to lift up 40 to 48 inches, maybe even as high as 60 inches off of the basement floor, and then push all the way back to the front of this crawl space. Yeah. And as far as law enforcement goes, it's like, look, if, if their hand is strong and they're just waiting to get certain tests done, because you got to feel for this family for a while, she's missing. There's hope that they're going to find her. Then they find her in the crawl space of her apartment building. And it, with law enforcement, it drives me insane because the longer this goes, even though we're getting new technology all the time, to me, the family loses hope. Mm-hmm. And if you say that this case isn't cold, then unless your hand is so strong that you know that one day you're going to definitively solve this case and you're not so worried about it, then maybe don't share so much information. But after 14 years, it's like, come on, maybe, maybe share a little bit to get you closer, to help you build a stronger case. Well, and that's one thing that I found to be rather frustrating. And frankly, I think almost unacceptable in this case. Because what we have here is we have, they have quite a bit of more information. They're unwilling to share any of that information. And a big part of my phone conversation was going to be, it's been 15 years. If there was a time to come up off of some detailed information to give to the public, you reminder, you're asking the public for help. You're, you're, you're actively asking the public for help. If there was some bit of information that were to change based off of the known facts by law enforcement in this case, or if there was a detail in that information that they could release, think about all the people that we've mentioned that they've already interviewed, that they were working with very closely that first week when she was missing, and then, unfortunately, the next week after she's found. And now we know we're dealing with a murder. You could have one person or many people within that group of people that goes, wait a second, that detail that you just informed us about, well, now that doesn't jibe with all this stuff that that I had been told by person A or person A and B. Right. And now there's a problem with somebody's story. There's a problem with somebody's timeline. And you can hone in even more and more closer to the actual suspect. If her cell phone truly was missing, if this jacket or coat truly was missing, you find somebody in possession of one or both of those items. Well, they just went to the top of your suspect list. Right. And it's who knows what information you could come into 
that could lead you to executing a search warrant later. Well, I hate to admit it, but I agree with you. Well, and in their defense, we don't know how sensitive the information that they have is, right? And it could be something where you don't want to upset the apple cart. And law enforcement knows that, hey, this this evidence, these suspicions that we have and the things that we have collected that have led us to this one person or this group of people, it's, it's sensitive and it's fragile. And we are waiting to get the smoking gun, so to speak, to really put this person away or to tear to tear down this group of people. So what we do have is we know that there were developments that were made in this case. In 2008, the Huntington police were on record saying, quote, there is an individual that we believe was involved, meaning somebody that they've already talked to they think is responsible for this. And they go on to say that they had interviewed dozens of people trying to find answers to Leah Hickman's murder. But this one name keeps popping up quote. It is an individual that we have contacted and spoken to. However, this individual keeps coming to the forefront of someone we're particularly interested in. Now the police clearly are not going to be releasing this individual's name or the name of the person or persons of interest in this case, or what I would deem to be suspects at this point. They did say that they have DNA evidence in this case that was sent and tested at an FBI lab in Arizona. It is something that they are going to have to hold on to for future testing says that they police are on the record saying that they believe that results of testing could either lead to an arrest or could clear the name of the person of interest altogether. So that, that makes it a little bit more clear why this could be sensitive, fragile evidence that they have here. Right. When Mm -hmm. you give the statement of the evidence that we have, once we get the results of the testing of this evidence, it could either, lead to an arrest of this person, or it could clear the person that we think we've, we've narrowed it down to. Yeah. Like you said, I think their wording definitely makes it seem like they narrowed down to one individual. And I do think out of so many cases that we've covered this year, this case one is 100% solvable. And I do believe it will be solved in the near future. And again, Captain, I think that the wording used in the choice of words here is very interesting in Leah's case. And these are the words again of the Huntington Police Department saying, there are three things that help solve cases, confessions, witnesses, and physical evidence. No one has confessed and there are no known witnesses to this crime. And the police clearly have not and will not release the names of any suspects or persons of interest in this case, but did confirm that the police believe the suspect to be someone with, quote, close knowledge of the victim, end quote. And then they go on to say that we would have hoped for a resolution a lot sooner than we have. But the case being as it is, it just hasn't come like we wanted it to. And it eventually will. Very key here, though, the police go on record saying analysts say that DNA evidence collected will last up to 40 years for testing. So that evidence that they have, it's safe, it's secured, 
It's preserved, and they believe that it's that evidence that will lead them to an arrest and a conviction, hopefully sooner than later. want to thank everybody for joining us here in the garage. Make sure you sign up on our mailing list or subscribe to our YouTube channel at True Crime Garage TV. And until next week, be good, be kind, and don't litter. Is America's primary system working? Is the Electoral College still the best process for electing a president? Could a third-party candidate ever be successful? In a new season of You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen gather the country's top experts to explore these issues and more as we approach the 2024 presidential election. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available now wherever you get your podcasts.